Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. This is The Political Scene, and I'm David Remnick. Just days ago, I returned from a trip that took me all over Israel, including what's called Otef Aza, the Gaza envelope. This is part of an RPG? This is where a thousand armed men from Hamas broke through the barriers surrounding the Gaza Strip and carried out a massacre that went on for hour after hour and left 1,400 Israelis dead. You, see, you can see the Kalachnikov, you can see another part of the RPG here. They, they shot on these safe rooms with all the civilians, the RPG. We were fortunate that most of them were not penetrated by, by the RPG, but afterwards they, they, uh, they, they, they broke the doors. I was escorted by an officer from the Israel Defense Force, the IDF, which was still working to secure the area after the unprecedented collapse. You know, we are speaking a lot about the failure, and it was a deep and hurt failure, but we also should discuss the bounce back. Uh, But it is the Israeli DNA that even if you're on the ground, you were hit, bounce back very quickly. What what are we hearing? We are hearing... um, the Israeli airborne um, bombs in Gaza. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You may have read comparisons between the Hamas attack and the historical pogrom known as the Kishinev massacre more than a century ago in the Russian Empire. Kishinev was one of a great many pogroms in Eastern Europe, but it changed the course of history convincing many Jews that they could never again be safe in Europe. Forty-nine people were killed at Kishinev. The body count from the October 7th attack is, as I said, over 1,400. Wait a second. Let me ask you a horrible question. Yeah. You know that in parts of the world, people will say this is all fake. It's all hasbara. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say to that? Some people say that the Holocaust was didn't exist, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so how do you respond to such mm-hmm. people? It, truth doesn't matter, okay? I'm standing in front of you. I'm a reliable person. I saved dozens of people in my life all over the world. In search and rescue. Yeah, search and rescue. This is what I do. Uh, I have pictures... That. But these people also, if they would see it in their own eyes, they would say that we faked the situation. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Okay? It doesn't matter. Why should I care of people who who choose to believe the evil? In its shock and rage... Israel has responded with colossal force, with countless airstrikes on Gaza. As I record this, 
More than 5,000 Palestinians have been killed, according to local authorities in Gaza, linked to Hamas. And the number goes up every day. The Israeli military has cut or reduced the flow of water and electricity, and hospitals are simply not able to cope. There is no sign of a ceasefire. At the same time, Israeli troops have mobilized for a ground invasion into Gaza. And there are grave concerns all around the world of a regional confrontation that could involve Hezbollah and Iran. I've been to many places and seen many things, and yet I've never been anywhere where the grief, the suffering, the rage, and the fear are more profound. I'm going to speak today with two keen observers whom I've known for many years, the Israeli journalist Yonit Levy and Sari Nuseba, a Palestinian academic and intellectual. We're going to spend most of today's program with them, We'll begin with Yonit Levy. She's the anchor on Israel's leading TV channel, Channel 12, and I spoke with her last week. Yonit, I've just returned from Israel, but you've been anchor for Israel's leading station for 20 years, remarkably. I, I want to get a sense from you what it's like to be in the country right now. <sighs> to be honest, David, it's... Uh... It's the worst it has ever been. It's never been this heavy feeling of mourning, really. Uh, the whole country is engulfed in that. And it, when you think of Jewish history, when you think of what we are imbued with and think of what happened to us in this shock attack of October 7th, then you realize that every single Jewish nightmare came true. And it is a very difficult uh, thing to deal with, quite honestly. With all of Israel's challenges, I think we had this sort of concrete floor of, of certainty that is sort of pulled from us. And now we question so many things that we haven't, hadn't questioned before. You question what? The very existence of the state? No, but the ability most basic ability to have a secure home for your family. Because if terrorists burst into communities and towns and small kibbutzim and murder families in their beds, then the one thing that you as a parent even need to ensure is for them to be secure. So that is the one thing. And this country... You know, is is exists for that uh, large part of it exists for that reason, right? To be a safe haven for Jews uh, in Israel and around the world, and and so it is a question of of that kind of security, right? Because what happened on October seventh wasn't only a failure of intelligence; it was then for the other kind of first couple of hours a failure of operational failure. The the families calling in to live television saying the terrorists are here. Where is the military? It took a while. The killing took place in Otef Aza, the, the Gaza mm-hmm. envelope, the kibbutzim and towns and, and the music festival right near Gaza. And that's obviously been evacuated. Mm-hmm. And after visiting those places, I also t- talked to many of those evacuees um, in other kibbutzim in the north, and almost none of them said that they would go back and live there again unless Hamas was defeated, utterly defeated. What does that mean? The 
Israeli, you know, government was and, and the military is is pretty clear on saying Hamas can't rule Gaza anymore, and it can't have the capability to do what it did again. I mean, that should be very clear. The, the world that is talking about Israel retaliating or Israel's revenge or Israel's rage, this is defense. This is to make sure that what we saw, this massacre, can't happen again. If you, you're looking at Hamas as a terror organization, so it has a couple of thousand commando units called Nukhba. It has another 25,000 parts of the of the military uh, arm of Hamas. I'm we're doing them quite a favor to still make that distinction between the political and the military. So you can go after that, right? And you can say we will topple um, Hamas's reign of terror in Gaza. So it will never endanger Israelis and, in fact, won't threaten the lives of the people in Gaza. But it does speak to larger questions, which is a little bit, I think, what the United States had to deal with after toppling Saddam, which is, and then what? Uh, I think that is also a large question if if we if we reach that point. You you mentioned Iraq, and I think implicitly Joe Biden did when he came to Israel. He showed immediate support for Israel, but at the same time, he very directly counseled against making mistakes out of a sense of rage, out of a sense of lashing out, the way the United States did in the wake of 9-11, particularly in Iraq. Right now, we're seeing an gigantic mobilization around Gaza, countless airstrikes, footage and reports of well over 4,000 people dead already, with more to come. Do you think the specter of a kind of overreaction, um, a, a situation in which the stronger nation ends up doing things to defeat itself uh, is a reality? I mean, first, the stronger nation was attacked brutally. And I think that whereas Israelis are still, and I think large parts of the Jewish world are still living that attack because the atrocities continue to be uh, uncovered every day, every single day. We are 18 days into this. You know, on the one hand, the United States, Joe Biden, the president, saying, you should defeat Hamas. And I, I that that should happen. But also, and I think this is very important, under international law. Under international law, uh, tragically, doesn't mean that there won't be civilian casualties. So we still, I mean, that moral equivalence that people are now looking at the casualty list and saying, oh, there are 1,400 dead in Israel and 4,000 dead in, uh, in, in Gaza. That is, uh, I think, a moral equivalence that is wrong to make. Why? With all, why? Why? Because Israel... I will explain this. Israel was attacked. Look, this is not a another skirmish or another violent cycle. 3,000 terrorists came into Israel, broke down the borders, broke down all of the walls uh, surrounding communities, had specific targets. This is a, a, a startling collapse of, as many people, Israelis said to me, a collapse of the state, a collapse of surveillance, a collapse of, of security. What is your sense as a journalist of what happened? Why did this happen? How could it? There are, there are a few layers here. Uh, one is obviously a colossal failure of intelligence because Hamas has been planning this 
for more than a year. So Israel uh, failed here. And I think the failure, David, is not that the information didn't exist, but that the information wasn't analyzed properly. It wasn't understood. They thought that what they saw uh, behind the fence was an attempt to pressure Israel, an attempt to pressure the a part of Hamas that is outside of, of Gaza, all kinds of things. They didn't understand what they're actually seeing. Occam's razor, right? The, the, the simple solution is actually the solution. Because of the intelligence failure and because Hamas managed to uh, blind the uh, bases, the military bases next to the uh, communities, that the military had no idea what the scale of it was. They actually conquered for a few hours uh, something like 20 communities on the Israeli communities on the border. And it took a very long time, by the way, heroic responses by the uh, civilians themselves in the communities, by the first uh, policemen and soldiers that arrived there. But it took a very long time How to long actually it uh, stop it. Well, in certain Certain kibbutzim, it took eight hours. In certain places, it took 24 hours. To this moment, I don't fully understand. I think no one fully understands why it took so long. I think the answer, again, is that the scale wasn't understood. Um, And I also need to tell you that, again, in Israeli media, the... The questions are not so much in that area right now. Not that we don't understand that there was a huge colossal failure, but the military is fighting a war, it might have another front opened up in the north. It it feels like, again, to the extent that I could represent the public sentiment, it feels like this is the wrong time to be asking all of those uh, very good questions. Yonit Levy is chief news anchor on Israel's Channel 12. We'll continue in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There is five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. I'm David Remnick, and I'm speaking today about the conflict in Israel and Gaza with two deeply informed observers on the conflict. We'll continue now with Yonit Levy, one of the most prominent anchors in Israel. I want to ask about the leadership of Israel. For many months, the center of attention has been in in this story and on your podcast um, has been almost entirely domestic, the 
judicial reform and the huge demonstrations against it. And that revealed a profound split in Israeli society. And then on October 7th, something happened that uh, many Israelis just describe as a collapse. And at the center of this is someone who's been the prime minister for over a period of time of 16 years, more than David Ben-Gurion, which is Benjamin Netanyahu. The polls now show him in miserable shape, calls for his resignation. His resignation at a certain point seems almost inevitable. He's under criminal indictment. The country is split. And yet he's there. He's leading this effort. What is the level of criticism against him or confidence in him? There is um, definitely a lot of criticism and as you said, the polls are not good. The polls are done in the middle of a war. So how, you know, that 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 needs to be uh, taken into consideration. No, but when it's in, important in post-9-11, you know, the, the polls for George Bush, let's forget Iraq true, to true. come two uh, years uh, later, we're, you know, right. headed towards 90%. Netanyahu's are in the 20s. That's a good point. But as you already mentioned, Netanyahu arrives at this and the whole Israeli society arrives into this or this is uh, uh, forced on us, this war, when we are very divided over Netanyahu's plans for judicial overhaul. The the distinction I was trying to make just is to to point out that that all of the security, all of the uh, IDF establishment, the head of the the IDF chief of staff and the head of military intelligence and head of Shin Bet and even the defense minister, Yav Gallant, all of them said this happened under our watch, and it is our responsibility. He and has not. Many, Netanyahu has not. He has not. Why is he that? He has not. If I'm trying to dive into his head, I think that he truly believes that he has nothing to do with this, that it was the fault of military intelligence. Nothing about his own policies vis-a-vis uh, Gaza in his mind, I'm, I'm trying to rep- mm-hmm. trying to describe what he's going through. I, I don't think he thinks it is at all his fault. He's trying to distance himself. It's it's it, that seems to the best incredible. Of my ability that seems to see incredible that is, to me and politically not um, viable. Uh, um, I think he is very concerned about uh, the public and its and the public reaction. There's a lot of rage that is not only because we talked about the failure of intelligence and the operational failure, but after that came the fact that the state of Israel and the different government ministries didn't seem to realize that what we have here is an evacuation of people from their homes and someone needs to help them. There are tens of thousands of people, uh, you know, who had had to be evacuated in the South and in the North, right? Because we're still sort of concerned about what Hezbollah might try and do. And and they feel like that the government is not at all dealing with them. So there is a lot of rage and a lot of it is focused on Netanyahu. Remember also that there were these sort of not specific warnings about something that, that Hamas will do, but but warnings by the military intelligence over the past couple of months that because of the judicial overhaul, because of the rift inside Israeli society, the, our enemies might use this as an opportunity to attack us. So as, that as is a, also As an overall vulnerability. And at right. this, it's also a matter of policy. Against the recommendations of his own national security advisors, Netanyahu, in my understanding, has carried out what's called the conceptia, the conception of how to deal with the Palestinians, to keep the Palestinian authority on its back foot. To str- he strengthened Hamas by allowing more people to come into Israel to work, to allow Qatar to, to send lots of money to Hamas. In some ways, he strengthened Hamas 
in order to weaken the already weak Palestinian Authority so as not to have the Palestinian Authority build again uh, uh, momentum toward a resolution of the Palestinian question, which has you know, uh, plagued or lingered in this region for a, a century. Um, so on the level of policy, Netanyahu seems to have been badly mistaken. He, he is receiving criticism on that as well, but I do want to be accurate about one thing. The Israeli establishment, Netanyahu being the head of it for, as you said, a very long time, mm-hmm. but also parts of the uh, security establishment. The way that Israel thought, particularly in recent years, to deal with this was to say Hamas is deterred. It don't well, doesn't want to start a war. It prefers the um, you know, improving the lives of its own citizens. So we will placate them with um, not only money coming in from Qatar, but we will allow for workers to come in from Gaza to work in these uh, southern areas. We will allow for a lot of commodities, and that will keep Hamas quiet. He will, Hamas will give us quiet. So that part is not only Netanyahu, but you're right about the fact that that Netanyahu in particular didn't want a strong Palestinian authority in the West Bank. And it was, in, in a way, in a, in a weird way, uh, easier to keep those two separate. By the way, they are separate. They are two separate entities, the West Bank and the Hamas, just in the matter of fact, from, from the fact that, stems from the fact that Hamas took over uh, Gaza. The Palestinian issue in recent years seemed almost to disappear from sort of international attention. I mean, obviously pockets of it and various human rights groups were were focused on it. How much do you think Hamas was motivated not only by protection of the Al-Aqsa Mosque or political prisoners, but in conjunction with Iran disrupting the entire um, picture on the Palestinian question. What you're saying is that they murdered Israeli civilians to get attention? In some ways. In some ways. This is in, it, this is a jihadist, Islamist, extreme ideology that is set to annihilate the Jewish state. This is in their charter. They were playing a game with all of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what they did. I mean, I think that any way of trying to see it other than this is what they intend and this is their ideology. Um, I I think we need to start with that. Yonit, there's a view that Hamas is, like it or not, part of the fabric of Palestinian political life. And the only way to make extremism disappear or really diminish would be for a lasting resolution between Israel and the Palestinians, whatever that might be. I think that as someone who has followed this tragedy for decades here in this country, again, we could have had peace a long, long, long time ago uh, if Hamas wasn't involved the way it was. They are the main reason Israelis and Palestinians don't have peace. I think they're also the main reason why parts of Israeli society have moved so far into the right, because in these really state of mind and the Israeli soul, every time they reached out to try and sign an accord with the Palestinians, it blew up in their faces with terror. What you're suggesting is that what happened on October 7th and its aftermath will for a very long time to come, a very long time to come, harden positions radically and 
a settlement peace in the region is impossible, and the only thing possible is higher walls. Tragically, walls didn't work on October 7th. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to see beyond, first of all, the next couple of days and weeks mm-hmm. for Israelis, to be quite honest. What Hamas attempted to do, when you murder children in front of their parents or parents in front of their children, when you post this on social media, again, you are trying to create this hate for generations. Will we have the power to overcome it? I I sadly can't give you a definitive answer on that, David. We've talked about Joe Biden and his reaction to what happened. Um, Mm -hmm. We have a complicated country too, and there's been all kinds of different reactions to what's what's happened and what's happening. What's your assessment of it from afar? The feeling is of 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 heartbreak in some way uh, from parts of um, the West that seem to automatically um, think in terms like Israel strong, ergo bad, Palestinians weak, ergo good, and this leads to terrible, terrible demonstrations that we've seen supporting Hamas. By the way, even before Israeli Air Force had one plane in the sky over Gaza. That is, you know, that led to a letter, I think a beautiful letter, written, uh, signed by uh, David Grossman and Cynthia Ozick and others, uh, exactly about this sort of heartbreak that they they feel when they look at, you know, the inability to just show empathy for what happened to Jews in Israel. Um, So that is, that is one part of how of how we see it. It's it's one heartbreak too many. I know you've spent a lot of time in front of the camera and interviewing people in in both studio and closer to where this horror took place and is and the, where this ground war seems to be about to take place. I wonder if there's any specific moment, any specific interview that you did, any encounter that you've had in the last few weeks that's just will stay with you to the end of your days. I don't forget, I don't think I'll ever be able to forget what the kibbutzim looked like after October 7th. We talked about the the future of Israelis and Palestinians. Eyal Waldman, whose daughter Danielle and her fiancé Noam were murdered at the party. He's someone who... He's a high-tech entrepreneur in Israel. He built offices in Ruabi, in Ramallah, in Gaza. He believes in that. He st- stood in the studio still uh, during, I think, a few days after his daughter's shiva. And, and, and he said, after all this, we will have to find a way to live together. I thought that was, you know, that was an, a moment of, of someone trying to overcome his grief in such a, a poignant way. There are so many moments that, that I... Uh, that are very hard, I I don't think will ever leave me. Yonit Levy, thank you so much. Thank you, David. Yonit Levy is the chief news anchor of Israel's Channel 12, and she also records the podcast Unholy with The Guardian's Jonathan Friedland. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour.
The houses in Jabalia refugee camp are too small that the street becomes your living room. You hear what your neighbors talk about, smell what they cook. Many lanes are less than a meter wide. A few days into the Israeli siege of Gaza, we received an essay from a Palestinian writer named Mossab Abu Toa, a poet. He lives in Gaza, and his family took shelter in Jabalia refugee camp. Abu Toa's account is called The View from My Window in Gaza, and he recorded an excerpt for us. After two days in the camp, on the Saturday morning, my family has no bread to eat. Israel has cut Gaza's access to electricity, food, water, fuel, and medicine. I look for bakeries, but hundreds of people are queuing outside each one. I remember that two days before the escalation, we bought some pita. It is sitting in my fridge in Beit Lahia. I decide to return home, but not to tell my wife or mother, because they would tell me not to go. The bike ride takes me 10 minutes. The only people in the street are walking in the opposite direction carrying clothes and blankets and food. It is frightening not to see any local children playing marbles or football. This is not my neighborhood, I think to myself. On the main street leading to my house, I find the first of many shocking scenes. A shop where I used to take my children to buy juice and biscuits is in shambles. The freezer, which used to hold ice cream, is now filled with rubble. I smell explosives and maybe flesh. I ride faster. I turn left toward my house. The poet Mossab Abu Toa, writing in the first days of the siege of Gaza. You can read the view from my window in Gaza in its entirety at newyorker.com. Twenty years ago, I wrote about a man named Sari Nuseba, who's been involved in efforts for peace and a Palestinian state for many, many years. Nuseba comes from an old and prominent Jerusalem family, and he's a professor of philosophy, early Islamic philosophy. When I profiled him for the magazine in 2002, Nuseba was a counselor to Yasser Arafat and certainly one of the most moderate people in the circle of the Palestine Liberation Organization. He is uncompromising in his insistence on Palestinian independence and dignity. And yet, he's able to acknowledge reasons for Israel's anxiety over security. His disapproval of violence, whether perpetrated by Israeli settlers or Palestinian suicide bombers, is absolute. I met up with Sari Nuseba again this month in East Jerusalem. I was trying to understand how the October 7th attack would change the trajectory of the larger conflict in the region. And we followed up on Zoom last week. Sorry, we've just had a conversation in, in Jerusalem, but there are things I want to ask you. Do you think the massacre of October 7th was a unique event? Israelis are comparing this to some of the great tragedies of Jewish history, 
about the Kishinev massacre, about things that go back centuries. And there's a particular aspect of cruelty that Israelis talk about. How do you view it? Well, look, I'm not going to deny that uh, human nature is uh, not all good, and some of it is morbid. In general, the massacres and the, you know, the problems that the Jews had in Europe were really exceptional, and they were not to be compared with their history in the context of the Arab world. Now, I'm not saying that there was nothing done to Jews in the duration of the Muslim and Arab world, you know, back to the 6th or 7th centuries, but uh, there was never this kind of anti-Semitism and this uh, gleeful desecration of Jewish values, Jewish uh, life, as, as, as it has been the case in, in the Western countries. The, the problem that we as Arabs and Muslims and Palestinians have with Jews has nothing to do with their being Jews. It has to do with the political conflict we have with them now on this land. I think, you know, there's a major difference. And I can see, in fact, that uh, that there is anti-Semitism still alive in in the West, but but it's not not the kind of of anti-Israeliness that that uh, I I can feel here among Palestinians or in the Arab world. The Hamas Charter, though, is the original Hamas Charter, was deeply anti-Semitic. Not much different from Henry Ford or, or some of the famous documents in anti-Semitic history that was revised in 2017. How do you view Hamas's particular view on this score? Well, I think that uh, Hamas, as you know, uh, derives from initially as an ideological uh, Islamist movement from the Muslim Brothers. That uh, movement is a kind of newcomer, in a sense, into the Arab world. You have a mixture. You have the mixture of Islamicism on the one hand and that uh, radical ideology, extremist uh, ideology. And then you have the uh, national ideology and they mix together in Hamas. You know, and I see it as a kind of part of the texture of our society, but not as one that is necessarily deep uh, in society and not necessarily one that can or should remain to be dominant in our society. You can always have radicals in any society. Um, but I think that they should be controlled. Now, you, you live in Jerusalem. You have lots of people that you know in, well, all over the region, all over the world as, as a scholar, but particularly in, in the West Bank and elsewhere in the Palestinian community. You seem to tell me the other day that the reaction to October 7th went in stages, that it was not one particular reaction. It evolved as the news came out. There was a disbelief that there was anything serious happening. Then uh, there was a shock that uh, there was something very major happening, which is the uh, crossing over, breaching the, the wall and the security uh, belt that Israel had put up. Nobody actually expected this could ever happen. And indeed, it never happened in the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. 
Then came the uh, explanation that this was um, Hamas militants going and, and sort of, you know, having shootings with the Israeli soldiers and taking places over. Um, and then there were the news or the views of the uh, people who came into the Israeli area uh, in the footsteps of the of the Hamas militants. And there were a lot of people that just poured in from Gaza. You know, the distances are very short, as you know. Just a mile or two, a, yeah. And so there was a lot of just taking stuff from the kibbutzes and the settlements that they could lay their hands on. So the, you're, I mean, you're, you're describing looting. Looting, yeah. Just to break it down, I think what you're saying is initially there was a shock, but also a degree of celebration at the, the fact that oh, they yes. broke through. And yes. then when they saw the nature of the violence, and the, it, it, there was something else, some a different kind of reaction. Yes. Yes, as the different uh, media came through, so you were not only seeing the Palestinian, but also the Israeli uh, point of view, uh, there were clearly problems. People started questioning the um, the nature of what is happening to the Israeli civilians themselves. And um, of course, when the news came out from the Israeli side that there were massacres and lots of people killed, um, you know, this wasn't, by the way, to tell you, I mean, this wasn't uh, something that on the Palestinian side was taken as necessarily true, that there were so many people killed uh, or so many civilians killed. But, you know, day after day, people stopped, looked again at the scenes and decided, yes, there must have been killings, uh, wholesale killings of people, civilians. And uh, that raised, of course, uh, worries and concerns among a lot of the people who were very much in favor of the breaching of the security wall in the first place. What were the and worries? Were the they, worries? Were they, were they, were they, were they, was it, more, was it moral? But was it moral? Mor a moral yeah. Yes, a moral concern. Things were going out of hand. This is not what should be happening. It was not something that people associate. Uh, the better natures with you. The thing is that you can't really dissociate between the two. You know, you have a conflict, you have people killing each other. You may be happy that, you know, your side is doing the better killing of soldiers on the other side, but then there are the uh, casualties, civilian casualties. But I think there's even more now uh, uh, realization that. Uh, no, this was definitely a, a, a crime to go around killing people like that. Occupation has been going on now for 56 years. 56 years. Some people still argue that there were opportunities for peace. You have deep roots in the, in the national movement. You, at one time, you were even uh, an advisor to Yasser Arafat, a distinctly moderate one. And people say, look, they were not perfect agreements. They were flawed in many ways. But they look back, and all these opportunities seen in the rearview mirror to a lot of people, like totally missed chances. Do you agree? I agree. I mean, missed chances by both sides, by the way, because it was always, is now also, and will be in the future, in the interest of the two sides to actually make peace. 
together. I feel that on the two sides have always been the readiness to make peace. But every time they took steps forward towards one another, they just didn't uh, make it and they gave up very quickly. I mean, like for instance, in Camp David 2000, um, they got together and then, you know, each side went out of the room by themselves and they just, you know, Clinton came out against everybody, the Palestinians, the Israelis, Barack came out against Arafat, Arafat came out against the Israelis and the Americans. And the population that was ready at that time for a peaceful solution between the two sides suddenly was thrown into the black hole of the universe. And by the way, the populations have over time consistently been uh, ready on more than one occasion. I mean, for instance, I remember the uh, after Camp David II, the uh, initiative, uh, it was a grassroots uh, informal initiative that I participated in with an Israeli counterpart, uh, Ami Ailon, you probably know him, uh, to get signatures uh, from both sides on uh, on six principles. You know, it's half a page paper on six principles. They had more than a million uh, signatures. That's total between Israelis and Palestinians. Can you believe that? This is one single document. I mean, no other document actually uh, had as many signatures. But it was a time when, in theory, people were apart from one another. And I think it's the responsibility of the leaders when they get to the point to actually, you know, what you say, to um, to make a closure in the deal between between them. I mean, the, the example between Olmert and Abbas is, is one such example. There's no reason why it, it shouldn't have just been built upon, you know, why they couldn't have met the following day and the day after that and why they couldn't have pursued it. I'm speaking with Sari Nuseba, a professor and longtime diplomat involved in peace efforts. We'll continue in a moment. I'm David Remnick, and I'll continue now with my conversation with Sari Nuseba, who had been an advisor to Yasser Arafat and the PLO, certainly one of the most moderate in the circle. He's a professor of philosophy and a former president of Al-Quds University as well. Sari, you express a degree of optimism that people that both populations are always eager for a peace agreement. But at the same time, we've just seen what happened on October 7th and then the aftermath. We're watching a horrific bombardment of Gaza now and a probable ground war. On the Israeli side, the government is more reactionary, more right-wing, more pro-settler than ever before in Israel's history. And Hamas remains as a dominant force, a fact of politics in Gaza and even the West Bank. So, in fact, you said something very interesting to me the other day, that Hamas is more popular in the West Bank and the Palestinian Authority is more popular in Gaza. And the reason is matters of governance. The whole recipe, sorry, does not bode well to me for a peace settlement. Well, apparently, I mean, that's that's how it is. Uh, But but the, the popularity and lack of popularity has really more to do with governance, how the different authorities are governing their uh, constituencies and 
the sense that they are not doing all they can. But look, I mean, people get very angry. I can understand the Israelis and the Palestinians now today wanting vengeance and wanting to, um, you know, regain the image they have of themselves and wanting their rights and all of that. But I think both peoples know deep down that it doesn't lead anywhere to continue shooting at each other and that there must come a point when they have to uh, come to terms with another, one another and to find some kind of form of coexistence between them. So although the Israeli uh, population is, is, has sort of been pushed to the right and on the Palestinian side have been pushed towards Hamas, uh, nonetheless, I think this is a temporary thing. And I think that, you know, the day will come soon when it will be possible again to uh, build for peace. And it can be done with sufficient also help and intervention by the international community. The other day you said to me that the idea that Israel thinks it can eradicate Hamas is a delusion. And you said instead of thinking you can shoot and kill them, you can reverse the situation by refusing to shoot, by giving the other option the air it needs. You get what you want by addressing the national concerns and that Hamas, in a sense, would wither away. Well, you know, Hamas represents what you might call active resistance to the occupation in the Palestinian community. Uh, the Palestinian Authority, if you like, represents a kind of uh, per the pursuit of the dream of a peaceful solution with Israel. Now, these are the two uh, options that we have before us. And if the peace option succeeds, I think that the uh, support that Hamas has as a movement that wants to continue to have active resistance will simply uh, die down. I'm not saying that everything to do with Hamas, their ideas, the Hamas people who support it will, will disappear, but I think they will be reduced once again, like they did before, to a kind of uh, acceptable minority in the community. And likewise in Israel. I mean, in Israel you have... Uh, a radical right now in control, but I think it can be reduced, not necessarily wiped out, but reduced to have a kind of role within the overall context of a population that's driving towards uh, peaceful relations with its neighbor. Everywhere where the governments are not actually addressing the people's needs, there's uh, going to be a situation, there's going to be a situation where people will rise up against the against that government you have to have governments that actually are governments there for the people that they respect the people they respect their dignities and they offer the services and the needs that they want and that's not what you find in the arab world today in the, general the other day i spoke with uh, david grossman a great novelist oh, yes. and and david said that this is going to intensify the right-wing drift in in Israel, there will be even more valorization of the army, despite the army's failures. And he was very pessimistic. And also Israel, considering the geography of where it is, while being a, a power compared to the Palestinians regionally feels under assault. Um, all this also augurs, at least in the short, short term, for a, an extended period um, of not only violence in Gaza, but of 
a wariness of any kind of settlement with the Palestinians? Well, I, I agree that in the short term, this is exactly how the Israelis now feel, will continue to feel, con concerning the army, concerning their security, uh, and so on. And also in the short term, on this Palestinian side, also, you know, people will feel Palestinians have to be revenged, military uh, resistance has to continue, and so on. But I think it will not be like that for in the long term. And, you know, at the end of the day, whoever you are on the Israeli side, from the extreme right to the extreme left, or on the Palestinian side, whoever you are, you really want to have a nice common life to live. You want you, you know, to feel secure about your children. You want to have their schools uh, over there. And uh, you want to have their gardens and public space. You have to, this is what you want. And, and this is true of every Israeli. Uh, including the most extreme of them, and of every Palestinian, including the most extreme Hamas, if you like, militant of them. But you have to give them options. People have to be shown or provided with options. Or you don't think there'll be a, a wider war, a regional Look, war? Look, it's, it's quite possible. <laughs> it's quite possible, you know, if Iran and Hezbollah and, and I don't know what um, begin to become involved, uh, yes, it will, you know, turn this will turn into a, a third or fourth uh, war, world war, third world war, and I hope it does not, and that people have enough sense to stop contain it, who are in leadership positions uh, everywhere, and I hope people will come to their senses and try to sort of temper down the emotions uh, surrounding what's happening now. Uh, that uh, some kind of ceasefire will be reached with the with people in in, in Gaza. Uh, and on the West Bank. And, you know, some kind of vision of a possible peace in the future can be presented that needn't be implemented immediately, but that can be shown to be workable and shown to be uh, one that addresses the concerns of the Israelis and the Palestinians. And, you know, we have to work in order to bring it about. We don't have the option of being pessimistic, uh, David, really. We, we can't sit back and say, you know, that's it. We have to continue working in order to make it happen. Sorry, Nuseba, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, David. I'm David Remnick. Thanks so much for listening to the program today. I'm publishing a letter from Israel to appear in The New Yorker shortly. And you can find all of our coverage of the recent attack and the ongoing conflict at newyorker.com. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.